Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking perfect albums. There's a lot of great albums out there, but a perfect album is one where you wouldn't skip any song. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate us and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk perfect albums. Hey, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, and tonight we're talking about perfect albums. Perfect albums is a designation that, again, Jeremy and I came up with. Uh, It is albums where you would not skip a single song, which is different than great albums. There's a lot of great albums where you have one song that you can't always skip over, one or two. But this is a perfect album, which uh, by our definition is songs where you wouldn't skip a single song, or albums where you wouldn't skip a single song. So anyway, uh, each of us have come up with uh, three for the sake of conversation this evening. And Jer, what's your first one? So yeah, my first one, well, before I started my first one, I, uh, I thought I had the golden ticket for a perfect album. I've, I've long referred to this category as the, as the rumors conversation, because I've long thought rumors a perfect album, and I... I, to this day, pretty much give it a 99.9% rating, but um, on my research for this this pod, I, I listened to it, and I forgot how much I hate the song, Oh Daddy, <laughs> <laughs> and with technology, I get to skip that song freely, and I do often and always, so um, that completely threw me into a tailspin, and, and so... Um, the other thing is we have a pod, you know, that we did earlier in the year around Thanksgiving called Comfort Food, which I think is, is all of our sort of comfort perfect albums, albums that we listen to start to finish. So those were excluded. Um, so what I started to think about is like albums that I just kind of think of as a whole entity. And, and you know, um, and, you know, the rule is that we, we kind of came up with, <clears throat> you know, you can't skip a song. There can't be a bad song. There can be a good song, you know, maybe not great, but there can't be a bad song. And um, the first one that came to mind, uh, and I happened to just be listening to this album, you know, a couple weeks ago, because I always listen to it from start to finish, and, uh, you know, it happened to come out in 93 when I was 17 years old, you know, had recently gotten my driver's license in, in, in suburban New Jersey, and it was the Wu-Tang Clan, Enter the uh, 36 Chambers. Um, it's, you know, to me, one of the most powerful, you know, uh, kind of groundbreaking hip-hop albums that, that has hit, hit ever, you know, and, and uh, you know, some of it was my age, but I think also it's an album that influenced, you know, everyone from Jay-Z to Nas to Mob Deep to Biggie. Um, it was a true merge of, like, the underground and, uh, you know, sort of uh, mainstream kind of, uh, an underground album that had mainstream success, sort of driven by RZA with a fleet of rappers who have gone on, you know, it introduced us to, a, you know, a whole cast of characters from Old Dirty Bastard to... Capadonna, Jizza, Method Man, I mean, you know, uh, 
Jeremy, are you not gonna are you not gonna drop this as they do on the album? The RZA, the Jizza, <laughs> old dirty bastard, inspected deck, Raekwon the chef, Ghostface killer, you god, and yeah, well, Met. No, I, okay. I, I, anyway, I we can save that for another yeah, podcast. Exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, it's also an album that I like. The cool thing about it is I've never really listened to this album on, like as a spot check. Like I don't just throw on M-A-T-H-O-D Man or Cream or uh, Mystery of Chess Box. And, you know, I, I throw it on from start to finish. It, usually now, as I've gotten older, when I'm working out, used to be, you know, driving around the town, maybe, uh, you know, smoking illegal substances on my way to lacrosse practice. But, um, but you know, it's, a, uh, <laughs> it's an album that, you know, even the, the skits, the, the sound, the, the really sparse piano, the odd pop culture. I mean, I had never, you know, heard of Kung Fu movies when this album came out. Um, you know, all of the samples that RZA uses. It, it's just, I still, and, you know, shame on me for using the word, but it's their song title. The minute shame on a comes on, it is the, I mean, that song gives me chills. You know, that is one of, like, the most in-your-face best hip song, hip-hop songs ever. But you can say that about the whole album. I mean, it's a great album. So, I mean, so, the one other cool I, thing I, before, sorry, Christian, to cut you off, is no, go ahead. being 17 when this album came out, it was really impactful. But it also was an album that both sort of, you know, being a white white person and, and, and also, you know, I, I was in New Jersey at the time. It was an album that both, like, the African-American community really embraced and sort of the, you know, you know white rock community really embraced. It was an album that kind of crossed all cultures and, and really kind of made an impact. So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I think that's a, that's a really, I mean, that's a great point. And I, you know, I think I also used to blast this out of my car driving around the suburbs of Northern Virginia. So I'm glad to see that tradition um, continued, whether we, uh, whether we talked about it at the time I was doing it or not. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think like the thing that this really, it sort of came at a pivotal time. And I mean, you can, maybe talk about this a little bit more, but like, it seems to me that the thing that's combined was like, so, you know, that, that sort of sparse beat minimalism that you were talking about, those eerie sort of, um, uh, you know, like minor scale, I guess, um, piano parts Mm -hmm. that were, that were introduced in this, like it combined that sort of, um, this like really visceral, hostile, like street rap stuff, but with like a level of, I mean, you know, like lyrical, dynamism and um just incredibly crafted raps but but sort of like you know intellect as well that was so incredibly clever so culturally referential um that sort of uh you know combined like this uh this street rap um with uh with i think you know some of the smarter stuff that was coming out by you know tribe or or public enemy and it was it was also pretty you know oddly sort of musical as 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 spare as it was right yeah no i mean That was one of the things I, you know, I was thinking about uh, listening to this. I think in the last pod you talked about, you know, Public Enemy and uh, De La Soul coming out with albums in the same year. And, you know, there was the era of the mixtape and not the current definition of a mixtape, but like, you know, mixes that you'd make on cassettes. And the funny thing to me was that both of those albums were great out, you know, both those albums were great out and It Takes a Nation of Millions and Three Feet High and Rising. But... Take, uh, takes a nation of millions lent itself to mixtapes as well. Like you could put any of those songs on a mix, and they made sense. De La Soul's album, like once you took the, one of the songs out of the middle of it, it didn't work. 
it was like it had to be listened to as an album. And I think this thirty, I think the Wu Tang Clan is kind of the same thing. Where I mean, I, I, you know, it's fun. I, I hear what you're saying. I would actually I, I, that isn't true for me. I mean, I actually think you can take any one of these songs and, and throw them on a mix, and it stands up in its own right, and it wouldn't, you know. And at the same time, I prefer to listen to it top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, that may just be a, a personal preference, well, but I mean, I think these actually, it is a full, like full sort of, uh, uh, you know, album of, I, of individual I think it was, bangers. It was more just that I, you know, the distinction between those two albums, it was strange to me to think that, you know, one lent itself really well as singles, um, and not necessarily the one you'd think would, cause you know, De La Soul, which was much friendlier, um, and, you know, sort of light, uh, just never like none of those songs really made sense out of context. Yeah, no, I think you're right with the De La, and I, I probably would agree a little more with Christian on the, on the Wu-Tang, and mainly because there's so many different MCs that right. each song is almost like a new... It sounds like know, a compilation a anyway. Adventure. Yeah, but, it, but the cool thing is, is it works. It's not like a super group, and it's not, I mean, it is in a sense, but it, it, you know, it wasn't at the time. It was sort of this introduction to all these folks. It gels, yeah. yeah. And then, and <clears> then um, you know, there's songs that have kind of a dance groove, there's songs that are really dark and sparse, there's some really good humor on this album, it's really funny, and then just some, you know, crazy, I mean, it was it was really funny to actually be, you know, kind of there when this album dropped, and I don't mean there, like, in Staten Island or anything, I mean, you but know, there like, in, in the New York area. area. In the yeah. New York area, because it, you didn't have a lot of access, this wasn't like a huge radio hit, it really truly was kind of an organic thing, Underground. people didn't know, there was rumors that, like, at, uh, you know, the Palladium, or at, um, you know, the clubs in New York City that the Wu-Tang would come in and beat people up. I mean, there was this whole, like, sort of uh, mythology. mythology around them. Yeah, this sort of gang. And their videos were really, you know, grimy city oh, videos. Oh, we're crazy. And, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> that was I mean, pre-The still, Caveman video? Yeah, and, and, you know, then, you know, if you want to talk about Grand Slams and another pod, I mean, they, they went on to put, I, I kind of group all of their solo albums as, as really a Wu-Tang Clan collective, and... And they just went on to kind of, they took this album and for the next four to five albums were, were fantastic for each person's sort of uh, limelight. But I still think it, it, it's really cool to listen to this album from start to finish. I, I think it, it certainly brings me back to a time and place, but I think it's absolutely relevant today. And, you know, as influenced, you know, like I said earlier, there would be no Mob Deep. There would be not a lot of the stuff that we love. And I think even like people like Kanye and, and some of the big stars of today really took the... Oh. You know, and I think it's worth it, one other one other point that I've always loved, like that um, I, you know, that I, I've heard Jizza make uh, on a bunch of different occasions, and, and actually Method Man as well as I'm thinking about it. But like, you know, these guys always distinguish themselves by like being a little bit separate from the rest of the New York scene, yeah, and yeah, I mean, yeah. part of that was just they were on Staten Island, yeah, and like it, number they, five. they didn't exactly. They didn't. I mean, they weren't like, cool. It was like. No, they were, uh, no, that's why they were into kung fu movies and weird shit. You know, it's like, yeah, and they really they were able to, I think, really sort of toy with and experiment with, and then and then really you know develop a, a new sound that like that you that you just probably couldn't have couldn't have concocted if you were if you were hitting nightclub to you know after nightclub in in Brooklyn or if you were or paying too much attention to what Manhattan. was going on. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as my cue to go to my first uh, perfect album of the evening. My first perfect album is T Rex Electric Warrior. Um, I was uh, I was just saying earlier that um, my friend Josh Lee and I were standing outside one night talking about 
our favorite albums and, and Electric Warrior came up and we both said it's not necessarily the best album ever but it is the album that I would most want to be responsible for because it's the coolest fucking album ever. <laughs> I was ever. just going to say, it's so cool. <laughs> it's just, there's something so, like, just, I don't know, there's there's something about the, his delivery and, and the music and everything else. It's, it's almost childlike in its simplicity, and yet um, I, I had actually written a note to myself to, that, you know, when I listened to it again today, and I've been cranking it all day, which is that, you know, Bolin writes songs like a 14-year-old boy is writing a comic book about a sex superhero. Um, you know, like, <laughs> not much of it makes sense, cause it's, and it's not that well-reasoned, but it just, it just works. It's just awesome. And, um, you know, he, <clears throat> he's so sort of guileless and silly. Uh, the lyrics are absurd, and yet he completely sells it by being 100% there in, in uh, attitude and confidence. And so, um, you know, to me, that is... Go ahead. It just, it seems like, you know, compared to some of its peers, I mean, it's often, you know, it's, it's definitely lumped in there with glam rock and Bowie, and, you know, you can even say, um, uh, you know, I think some early you know fairy stuff i mean it's like it, this this was all this was all of the sort of opulence of glam rock but without the um you know without the sort of like art school pretension, pretension. um yeah you know, and, and a, i mean that that really was just total arrogance without you know without any strings attached yeah it was arrogance without uh you know without uh any sort of self-consciousness um you know it was you know, i am i am pretty uh do you want to touch me I want to touch you. I mean, that was essentially the the you know sort of ethos. My you know Bolin. Then they you know it was a great three album run. I mean, um, this came out in seventy one, so it actually predates everything that you know. Bowie I was going to really say it is glam rock. This. I think T Rex is glam rock. You yeah, T Rex is who really pioneered it. Mm. And I actually think it's a it's sort of a forgotten genre, and, and weirdly, you know, sadly to me. Um, a lot of people refer to hair metal as glam rock. Um, you know, it's Shitty just a, rock. <laughs> I, I believe it is incorrect. But, um, but I mean, even bands like Sweet, who I loved as a kid, and um, even the Bay City Rollers to a certain degree. I mean, if you really break it down, they're a glam rock band. Um, Gary, Gary Glitter, who you can't really, you know, laud too heavily because he's, um, you know, such a despicable uh, human. But, uh, you know, his stuff was, was pretty great. Slade. Um, it was all Imata Hoople. Yeah, it was all this very sort of simple, um, almost like just it, it was like pub rock with makeup on. It was you know because the the roots of it are very simple, very blues based, but it's just you know and a lot of hand claps, a lot of cowbells, a lot of a lot of the stuff that you know makes music great. Um, I always think it's one also, of the greatest. Sorry, we'll go ahead one. Oh, no, 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 go ahead, please. One of the greatest compliments to that album to me is that I always thought it was the greatest hits album, just because I yeah. was like, every song is amazing. It's such a great choice, by the way. I love that album. And, uh, but, like, I just grew up thinking like, Electric Warrior was the greatest hits album for some reason, and, and the reason is every song's amazing. You know, the same way that, you know, you think La Fleetwood Mac or some of these other bands. That, like, Bo- right? The first Boston album that you I always, yeah. Yeah. I, always thought, I always thought that about the Cars. Yeah. <laughs> that is a greatest hits album. <laughs> Yeah, every one <laughs> exactly. of their best songs. Um, but yeah, I mean, and Bolin had this kind of like weird, like, like I was listening, you know, when I was listening to it again today, I almost, you know, there was a couple of very strange parallels that I drew only because of I have the, you know, this, uh, you know, the luxury of historical ref, you know, uh, 
the the you know fortuitousness uh, of hindsight on my side. But Boland had this sort of nonverbal, you know, sort of uh, language in the same way that like Michael Jackson did, where there are certain it's they're not words, they're just noises and sighs and inflections that only he used. You know, the sort of you know that kind of thing, or where Michael Jackson would have these like ticks as well that um, you know that weren't words, and they were almost like percussive in a in a way. They just punctuated uh, the things that he was saying in in a really interesting way. That um, I don't know. It was, it's just a, it's a very cool. Album. But that's like a bit of sex appeal and raunch too, right? Like, I mean, that's sort of the like those those little noises that like get tossed in on you know on on sort of downbeats between lines and that kind of thing. It's like it, it it adds like it's a total cool factor and like it's the one thing you can sing before you know all the words that you won't miss at any time. Well, it was like know? when we we were talking about uh, Blue Jeans that that seventies song by David Dundas. Lord David Dundas, I should say, um, you know, where it's just it's just the one thing when he goes into the chorus, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, and it 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 just makes the song, and I think uh, absolutely Bolin had that in spades. He was just great. Um, plus, one of the great iconic album covers of all time. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's another reason, by the way. I would think that you would have thought that it was a greatest hits album, yeah, right? I, I mean, it's like how, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's up there with London Calling as one of the great album, co- you know, just like cock rock. You know, uh, and then it, the funny thing is, I've seen interviews with Bolin, old interviews with Bolin. He refers to himself as cock rock. He has no, you know, it wasn't a disparaging term as far as he was concerned. It was like, yeah, yep, I'm sexy. I know it. This is my record. Anyway, Christian, what's your first one? All right, so my first is going to be "Kill the Moonlight" by Spoon, and this is uh, <laughs> this is the first Spoon album that I bought, the first one that I listened to, um, and. Uh, I have to admit that, that as embarrassing as this is, the first time I ever heard a Spoon song was actually um, was actually as a result of the OC soundtrack, which my friends in high school were obsessed with. Um, but uh, but <clears throat> friends, friend. in spite of that, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, yeah, um, but uh, but you know, in any event, the uh, the Kill the Moonlight is you know it just. It, it it is perfect in every way. There's not a song on this that I that I would um, that I would drop. And I think you know the the sort of the story of Spoon goes that they were um, you know put out uh, early on an indie label. Then they they joined up with Elektra. Um, they were dropped as soon as uh, Ron Lafitte, their A and R for Elektra at the time, I guess uh, left the company, and so they basically lost their one advocate. Um, and the second that happened, they you know were sort of um, they were uh, they were out the door. Um, but, you know, I think that their, their sort of cathartic release from that was, um, Girls Can Tell, uh, and then this is really the follow-up, and this is, you know, rather than, um, sort of continuing down that road of, of, um, almost, you know, sort of that smoother, poppier, um, type of sound, they, they went back to their roots, and they, they came up with something that was so staccato, um, and really, you know, my, my favorite part about this really is, um, the way that they use uh, the way that they use space and the way that they use silence, um, which I think you know is as powerful an instrument as every instrument playing at once if it's used correctly. Um, you know, so I think there are uh, uh, some great examples of that. But I mean, you know, I, Wyndham, you were saying a, a few minutes ago, what was your favorite song on the album? Uh, someone something. <laughs> someone something. Yeah. 
this is this is the definitive proof of. So what are you listening to? Yeah, um, no, no, sorry. I, I actually for a second there, I thought I had that. I I mean, I know the song. I just couldn't remember. Like, is it someone something something something? It's yeah, yeah, someone something. So I okay. Well, so there, that's my awesome attempt to tee up my example. <laughs> um, but so someone something, and then you know, I also think. Uh, Paper Tiger um, is, you know, uh, like I, that to me is always the one that sort of gives me chills. So that when he starts wailing toward the end, but I mean, really, that is when you think about it, it's what it's a it's a couple of rim shots with a with a uh, uh, drumstick um, and you know, very very um, staccato like uh, I guess organ or. or synth chords yeah. right so well, it's funny. i mean there's barely any other you know, instrumentation in that and it's just it's such a powerful tune the band is you know i mean they despite the fact that everybody in the 90s had a, a one word um non-definitive article uh band name spoon you know has frequently said that they were they named themselves after the can song spoon which actually is sort of the blueprint or one of the blueprints for that kind of sound it's a sort of um, you know, there's some, there's some, uh, you know, definition or some clarity defined by silences and, and sort of, you know, music then, you know, stops and, and, uh, it's, it's an economy of sound that, that is, uh, you know, very particular to very few bands, but they're, you know, they, they utilize it really well. Yeah. I think Spoon, I mean, and I actually happened to live in Austin when Spoon was kind of out of a record contract and, and um, Series of Sneaks was, was an album right before Girls Can Tell that was sort of in limbo, tied up and came out. And then, you know, I remember seeing them live and, and not being, you know, they were fine, like whatever, they were, they were around the clubs. And, and I had a really good friend who, who was friends with Britt Daniels and, and loved the band. He was actually trying to do a documentary on them and got me really into Girls Can Tell. And, and you know, I think that was kind of, you know the blueprint for what they became and I, th- I definitely think kill the moonlight took it to that next level of just really stripping it down and and just making amazing pop music really catchy tunes with with you know i mean you guys have both stated it but that sort of minimalist i mean small stakes just the intro song mm-hmm. it's just you know pounding on the keyboard and and just really great lyrical delivery and i think Britt daniel really found himself on this album i, I mean i think he's a great front man they've you know one of my favorite modern bands by far, and, and they've gone on to just kind of pump out great album after great album. But uh, this is the one that I really think they found their identity. I think uh, Girls Can Tell, which is an album that I, I'm very partial to because I, I just love it so much, and it's yeah, my first so. introduction to them. But, um, you know, I think it was a step in the direction that this album kind of completed, and, you know, and, and from there they sort of launched into the spoon that they are today. It's funny, yeah, there's a band that is frequently said to suffer from their own consistency, um, and it is kind of true. It, it, you know, you can't, I, I, when I was trying to think of this, you know, the t- song title for somewhere, some, someone somewhere, ugh. Someone something. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't <laughs> good at that, I, for whatever reason that trips me up. But, I mean, I was thinking, you know, summon, you know, I summon you, and then I would realize that that's not on that album. But all of those albums are so consistent that sometimes I can't remember which tracks are on which albums. Now, this is definitely a perfect album. I mean, you've got Jonathan Fisk, Paper Tiger, Someone Something. I even love, you know, All the Pretty Girls Go to the City. I mean, it's a great album. Yeah, I like that song, too, a lot. Um, all right. Well, uh, Jerry, what's your... Uh, do, actually, you want to take a break? Should and, we actually... Yeah, why don't we do that? Why don't we take a break and we'll come back? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
get gun, shoot, wow. How you like me now? Don't fuck the style, ruthless, wow. Do you wanna get your teeth knocked the fuck out? Wanna get on it like that? Well then shout. Your RZA, your RZA, hit me with the major, the damage, my plan, understand it, be flavor, gunning, coming, coming at ya, first I'm gonna get ya, once I got ya, I got ya, you can never capture the method man stature, for bombing, for rapture, got niggas resigning, now master, my staff, never, I put the fucking walk in the way, I can't terror, raise the sharp, I sever, the head from the shoulders, I'm better, than my competitor, you mean competitor, whatever, let's get together. Shame on the nigga who tried to run game on the nigga, who fuck wild with the Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, tonight we're talking Perfect Albums, uh, which is an album where you don't want to skip any songs. And different, like I said, different from a great album, which a great album can have a, a, a miss or two. But these are perfect albums, and that means there are no duds in the entire thing. And, and you know, one of the things I we thought about when we were putting together our list tonight was... You know, you can basically do this entire podcast on Beatles records because uh, with the exception of maybe the White Album, I think most of their albums are... I mean, and I love the White Album so much, but there's a couple songs that I tend to skip, uh, Piggies and Revolution Number no. 9. Um, but with that exception, I mean, you know, Revolver, Rubber Soul... Um, Sergeant Peppers... Abbey Road. Abbey Road. Yeah, they're just, they're, you're, they're just, it's impossible really to find the flaws in, in those records. And the Stones, you know, Big Four, uh, the 68 to 72, um, you know, it includes Beggar's Banquet and Sticky Fingers and uh, Exile on Main Street. And well, I think. Let It Bleed. Go ahead. Exile is, is one of those albums, just to kind of talk about Exile for a second, is another one of the reasons this conversation came up because. Earlier, we talked about sort of an album that you don't really pick apart. And that's an album, again, that doesn't... I mean, there are, you know, obviously there's standouts, but, like, it's an album that just sounds fantastic from start to finish. And, yeah. and you know, songs that I, I wouldn't necessarily think on their own stand up. I mean, you know, Tumbling Dice is the kind of the most known single off that album, and it's not even close no, to I, being the best, you know? I'm totally with you. I, I don't think of that as an album that, that has a lot of, like, standalone singles, right? I mean, it, it's... It falls into the De La compa- Soul category. Well, compared to how riff-heavy so much of their, like, great super hits were, um, you know, I feel like this is a much more sort of complete, like, uh, like a, a, a fully formed, like, thought or idea from beginning to end that you just don't want to interrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... It's so, a symphony. I don't know. That's, yeah. It's an entire symphony. Um, but that said, you know, that, that covers the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, there's, there's a handful and we'll probably do, uh, another podcast on this very subject, but until then, uh, Christian, what's your, what's your second perfect album of the night? So I think my second perfect album of the night, uh, tonight is going to be Sound of Silver, um, by LCD Sound System. And amazingly, this is not something we've talked about nearly enough on this podcast. I mean, for anybody who knows us personally, and certainly me, um, you know, I, I think uh, I, I talk about LCD a lot. Um, I was, you know, delighted when they reunited last year. Um, and uh, in, I guess, 2016, um, starting with that uh, lovely, awful, like, crushing Christmas song that they wrote. Uh, Christmas Will Break Your Heart, which, um, of course, came out, I guess, on Christmas Day uh, in 2015. But, um, you know, I I think these guys, 
have I, I think been pretty outstanding their entire run. I and I'm actually I'm willing to call that they're gonna they're gonna hit a grand slam um, with their with their next album uh, in the parlance of uh, of the guys over at Sound Opinions. You know the idea that that you get four truly great albums in a row. Another really um, difficult feat. Very 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 hard not to put out one that sucks, um, or at least I mean you know at least one, one that's not sort of middling. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, no, but I mean, I think the the thing about James Murphy in particular that that makes him, I mean, is is his incredible sort of like humanity and likability, right? I mean, that throughout all of this, he is struggling with, um, you know, he he's well, first of all, tying together all these sort of discrete musical influences from from kraut rock and, um, uh, you know, uh, post punk and and you know even dance and disco stuff. I mean, you know, he feels like somebody who basically has a record collection that I um, either have or at least admire. Um, you know, and uh, and then on top of that, it's the fact that he's like he's singing about shit that's kind of mundane sometimes. It's like how hard it is to get to work. I mean, New York, I love you. You know, you're bringing me down is is one of the best examples of this. But um, you know, I think that that when you talk about uh, losing my edge, which was sort of the the I, I think initially intended to be the the biggest single off this, um, you know, that's what it's a song about, basically getting older and realizing that you might not be as cool as you think you are, Wyndham. It's a um, it's a fifteen year old <laughs> song about this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, and then you've got like the incredibly, I mean, just the truly like gutting and heart wrenching. Um, someone great which i guess at the time was was you know it wasn't known who it was actually about uh and uh it too is about warren Beatty. um yeah exactly um but uh but then you know all my friends which i think jeremy you probably want to talk about for a second uh just because that's uh that's your all-time yeah, favorite that's, but i mean that's, i mean not to interrupt but yeah exactly that that is my you know on every playlist I play. That song just makes me feel something, which is, you know, I guess what music does in general, but that song truly, you know, I can just listen to it and just really, like, relate to it for some reason, you know. It's a great song. Well, someone great, you know, did that for me, and I think part of it was was a place where I was when, you know, I, I was listening to this album sort of nonstop for, for a couple of months. I went through, you know, deep dive again in uh in into lcd sound system and you know realized like it was a it was sort of a time when when you know i i was grieving at that point you know there was there was really something to be said for like just the way that he uh you know saw the world and sort of gave it a voice that you know the the coffee's not even bitter um and it's sunny outside like how how does the world not you know register sort of my uh you know how, how distraught i am exactly um, and that to me, I mean, it's just, it's an incredibly powerful and, and touching album, but at the same time, it's shit you want to dance to. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think in that way, um, there's maybe almost a, a Smithsy quality to it, right? Which is the, the, which is, you know, that it has, um, it has like an incredibly sort of, yeah, human touch, but, but it's, it's fun party music at the yeah. same time. It's, it's upbeat music about being miserable. Well, he's also a lived. He's a, he's lived it. I think the coolest thing about Murphy to me, and, and I love this album, Christian Great Selection, is that like he had kind of been through it all, right? He had been so he's my age. Bands. Yeah, he'd he'd um, exactly, um, except for with musical talent, and uh, 
and he'd had bands, he'd kind of had, you know, I love this story that he told, he was like, yeah, so, you know, I was DJing, I was, you know, I got into dance music, it was more fun, and we were out, you know, DJing, but I was the guy that would throw on a Stooges song, or, you know, whatever, and then I remember going, you know, this is James Murphy talking, going to a club, and, you know, like, then all the kids were doing that, and it just bummed me out, you know, and it was like, it was just great, like, he's like, fuck, Which is a totally sucks. honest you know? sentiment, yeah. yeah like, and I think that that's really captured in this album, though. I feel like it's a, it's it's very fresh. It's very you know, but it's very nostalgic at the same time. And and, and uh, yeah, and it's it's a little fragile. It's yeah. like you you sort of you really identify with this guy at different moments in in your own life. Like there's something that really there's a transferability of of sort of the the day to day experience that he's living. And also Ooh. confirm them as a great band. I mean, losing my as you mentioned earlier, I was the first I ever heard from them. You know, they sort of were kind of like, you know, Daft Punk is playing in my house, which are great songs, but a, a little bit like, you know, where are these guys going to go? This it really, felt a little novelty-ish. Yeah, it exactly. This really but not in a bad way. Them. but No, those were great songs, but like this solidified them as a true force to be reckoned with. Yeah, I think that's right. So are we turning to, to Jeremy or Wyndham Jeremy, for this one? What's your next okay. one? So I'm going from Wu-Tang Clan to... Uh, the soft listening of uh, Summer Teeth by Wilco. And, uh, you know, this is an album, you know, that I think is kind of underappreciated in the, in the Wilco canon. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a Wilco nut, I'll admit it. I think they're great. I know, you know, there's differing opinions on that. But there's sort of two bands there. There's the early Wilco, you know, the Jeff Tweedy sort of erupting from Uncle Tupelo, putting out a, a mediocre album, and then kind of um, meeting, you know, Jay Bennett and forming and, and putting out Being There, the double album, um, which kind of that band that sort of took Being There, the live version of Being There, became the band that created Summer Teeth. And then that's, you know, a big part of that was Jay Bennett, Leroy Bach, Ken Krumer, the band today is, you know, completely different. Completely different, exactly, except for Jeff Tweedy and, and, and Strait, who was the original bassist. Um, you know, I, I tend to really, you know, I think Tweedy's a great songwriter, but I think this is my favorite version of Wilco. And, and you know, it was sort of, they put down the, the fiddle for full on orchestrated violins and organs and, and kind of made like this beautiful sort of Beatle esque album. And it's, uh, you know, at the time I remember Rolling Stone giving it like three stars or something and just being like, yeah, it's nice. And they'd come off the Billy Bragg Wilco thing where they sort of stole the thunder from Billy Bragg. But I mean, this is an album that you, you kind of, you take and you listen to and, and, you know, perfect album. There's not a bad song. And it's a, um, it's also a band I, I really enjoy a band that you enjoy. So it's kind of like LCD Sound System that, that went from something really good, like this is good. And then you're excited for that next album to come out, and they take it to the next level. And, mm -hmm. and you know, for me, Summer Teeth really took things to the next level and established these guys as as a band, you know, great American band that you know has has variety. I think Jeff Tweedy's lyrics grew. You know, there was there was kind of fun poppy songs like Always in Love that have you know great sort of just perfect kinksy pop. And then there's songs like Via Chicago, you know, I dreamt about killing you again last night, you know, but with really cool sonic backgrounds and Moog synthesizers and things like that. So, um, but, you know, all, all of that, you know, jammed into an accessible package. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's uh, Summer Tea for me. I, I saw these guys live a bunch during that time. It's, it's one of my favorite albums. And I think... Um, you know, 
I think if anybody hasn't given this out in the time of day, because it doesn't really get the credit that Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or being there, even some of the later albums gets, it's it's one of Wilco's finest moments. If not, I think so finest. too. Yeah, I like. That. I think. I, I think it's. I think it's very good, and and certainly you know of of their stuff. Uh, one of my favorites, but I think we're going to have to do a separate podcast at some point where you explain Wilco to me. Um, I, it's just, uh, you know, I like it's never quite clicked. I think, yeah, I, I think there are, there are a lot of people who feel this way, um, many of whom are probably a little bit afraid to admit it. So so I'm coming out there. I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I'm willing to be their champion uh, here and just say I'm not sure. I, I, I know I'm supposed to like that band. I fit the demographic perfectly, um, but, like, I just... You know, I love Uncle Tupelo. I love, you know, Tweety and Farrah together doing, like, you know, a little harder-hitting country stuff. And I've, I've now seen these guys. I get it. They're amazing musicians. They're incredible performers. Um, ah, it just, it's a little bland for well, me. I, I, I'm a huge fan. Um, I will say that, you know, your claim to be in their... In their uh, Target demographic is is a little bit of a um, misleading. I should be fifteen years older. You're, 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 a, you're not you're not, 50, your, you're, not your, you're not in your forties and you don't have yeah. children. Um, but at the same time, I mean that's a you know that's kind of I think a bit of a tired cliche with Wilco too because I do think that they're a much more inventive and um, interesting band than than they get credit for. I think they get almost get the the sort of cold play treatment sometimes from people, and I don't think that no way. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying at all, yeah. though. That's the thing. I'm not. I really. I'm not. I'm not saying they're, they're, they they get the Coldplay treatment. I just. I. I. There's. Like. I. I guess I need to be steered to the to the places where I'm well, just going to be like blown on my ass. I think it does. I guess it, here's but the I will thing say, too, though, and and kind of like you know, and there's bands that that win kind of hit in that prime. So you know, I mean, we all love the replacement. So probably a bad example, but you know, win was there, right? I was at. I will go shows that you know. Right. Speaking of losing my edge, I, uh, you know, I was at you know just raucous, crazy, fun Wilco shows early on when they were getting going. You know, and, and so um, I think I mentioned on our Origins uh, pod that came out today. You know, like where the roadies would come out and they would just you know just play all night. And so, you know, I was also twenty one when that. It's was It's a going band on, you grew up you know? with. Yeah, exactly. It's a band I grew up with. So I get, like, just like I get, you know, some bands just aren't going to translate that much or, or they, and, you know, on an album they may not sound, you know, as sort of kind of rocking as they can be. And, and I'm sure you've seen sort of the, the, the newer version of Wilco with Nels Klein and stuff who are amazing. I mean, they're fantastic live. But they are a little formal, formulaic for my taste even. Um, and, I, you know, as much well, as Jay Bennett was kind of, a, you know, if you watch uh, Trying to Break My Heart, the documentary, which I think is a great documentary, by the way, and, and highly recommend. You know, he, he seemed like a pain in the ass. The guy brought a swagger to that band, and you know, really kind of. I think he elevated Tweedy, where Tweedy might not have elevated himself. You know, which was really Tweedy's always aligned himself with pretty serious players, and I think Jay Bennett brought out a lot of really great stuff in Jeff Tweedy. He brought out a rougher edge, not necessarily a, um, not necessarily a toughness, or you know, a, but more of like a. Um, uh, an ability to make mistakes um, that I think no. was really helpful. Yeah, and I mean, all all this sounds like you know this is a band that I that I want to like a lot, um, and you know a little bit more than I do. And wait I, I wait think till you're older. Is, yeah, but um, 
you know, I think that there's like you guys are describing like a, a sort of shit kicking era of Wilco that's very difficult for me to imagine, having just seen them in the King's Theater in Brooklyn, which you know is basically Radio City Music Hall, um, and you know it's it's a huge venue and it was all sort of very delicate and orderly. Yes. Yeah, and they're um, older now. I mean, that's the reality of it too. So, but anyways, um, I think it's a great album. I think it's start to finish. There's not a bad song on it. No, it's really uh, good. I think it's very underappreciated. In the and I think I think the last half of it really comes alive too. I, and like yeah. my favorite songs on it are are in the last you know uh, quarter of it. Um, so I think it, yeah. Well, my my second album tonight is uh, is going to be a fairly brief discussion because it's um, something I can't really add to the conversation. But it's Purple Rain by Prince, and um, uh, the fact is that this is an album that came out in a really crucial time in my life um I don't, I don't you know you're only 14 and awkward once um and purple rain was the album that was just it's hard to even imagine an album that had that has uh this kind of ubiquity anymore i mean there's just so much um it was just everywhere for one one summer and then actually you know had the staying power to to you know be remain popular forever but that one summer uh when prince came out and he had the number one album the number one movie on you know the number one singles and was just it was everywhere it it was unavoidable and good for us for not being able to avoid it um i think it you know every single song on it is great um it's got everything from when doves cry which is such an off kilter song uh to kick it off it's um it's such as, you know, they famously, uh, pre, they, they took the bass track off of that album, I mean, off that song, and um, it was you know, made better by the fact that it was, uh, it's, you know, it, it had such a unique and strange quality once they took the bass track off of that single. Um, Darling Nikki, the song that launched the PMRC, and Tipper Gore sent Tipper Gore to the Nuthouse, and... Um, it's a funny thing when Prince died last year. Um, you know, there was sort of uh, um, obviously, um, you know, a lot of retrospective, um, you know, re-listening and reappreciating Prince. But uh, the the funny thing to me is that people have you know listed you know there's a lot of lists of the greatest songs of the '80s or blah 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 the great Prince songs, and Purple Rain tends to get to the top of that list an awful lot and. I've always been of the mind that Purple Rain is actually probably the third or fourth best song on Purple Rain, um, which is a pretty remarkable feat, considering uh, that it is thought to be one of the best songs of the decade. But to me, The Beautiful Ones, which is a song that I used to skip when I was um, in eighth eighth grade when this came out, um, has really become probably my favorite song on that and my favorite one of my favorite vocals of all time. And uh, it it just it, it it just shows Prince's power. I mean, he's phenomenal player, phenomenal instrumentalist. He, but then also he can go from, you know, sort of that longing vocal to uh, just that you know sort of eardrum shredding, you know, heart rendering kind of uh, screech at the end of the beautiful ones, where you just feel everything that he's talking about, and you know, it, it, it's the album. Is perfect. That's all I'm gonna say. Anybody have anything to add? Because 
It's been talked about a lot. Mike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's also movie. it's also a really funny thing because, you know, this was sort of you know you this is a time in your life when you're just starting to sort of um, you know get together with you know girls and you're sort of discovering your sexuality. Purple Rain was the soundtrack, and then the flip side of that soundtrack was the Violent Femmes, which if, if there's anything more confusing than those two albums <laughs> <laughs> in your ear at the same time. Uh, when you're approaching a, a delicate time in your life, um, I, I'd love to hear what it is. But anyway, yeah, so that's it. Um, that's the book on Purple Rain as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I just the only thing I have to add is probably one of my favorite intros to an album ever. You know, it's just right away, just hits you in the face. It's great. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, the whole thing, and I've never, ever gotten tired of it. Yeah, it's good. It's damn good. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. So when you call up that shrink in Beverly Hills, you know the one, Dr. Everything will be alright. Back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Tonight we're talking about perfect albums. Christian, what's your what's your third perfect album of the evening? So for the third one tonight, I'm going to go with Led Zeppelin three. Um, and this to me, I mean, it's just it's the perfect, uh, maybe not the the perfect Zepp album, and that it's the it's the sort of uh, best banner album for them. I mean, they were such a heavy rock band in so many ways that this is really sort of an outlier. Um, but it is definitely the one that, uh, that you know, I want to listen to beginning to end over and over and over again um, without skipping a single track. Um, you know, I think that the, the song, interestingly, that sort of stands out that is perhaps, you know, fits best in with the rest of the stuff that they'd done on Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2, which was that sort of traditional London rhythm and blues style, um, is Since I've Been Loving You. But what's cool about that is that it really does sort of fit woven in between Celebration Day and Out on the Tiles. Um, 
you know, as a, as sort of a, a, even you know within within this album's sort of repertoire of songs, it's it's sort of it's the one um, slow sort of uh, you know lurching bluesy uh, bluesy tune. The rest, you know, kicking off with immigrant song, which is fucking incredible. Um, I think that sort of, you know, it speaks for itself. Like, um, you know, they wrote basically the greatest single Viking invasion theme music, um, that anybody has ever, uh, attempted to write, including the Vikings themselves. Um, and, uh, and then it, it sort of it fascinatingly, you know, veers off to, um, another type of, of, you know, uh, more traditional, rootsy bluegrass music and, and even English folk music at times. Um, you know, I think, uh, the highlights for me are, um, I, I mean, I've always loved Celebration Day. Um, uh, I've always loved Celebration Day. Um, and, uh, uh, Our Stomp, of course, which, you know, I think is, is, is named after, uh, named after the weird little recording studio. And, Rana are in, in Wales where they recorded this thing. Um, and then hats off to Roy Harper. It's just a hell of a way to close this thing out with, um, you know, just an incredibly um, acoustic blues uh, blues song that's sort of, you know, totally traditional with these cool little country licks on it. So for me, I mean, this is this is my favorite Zep album, and it's a band that I love to death. Um, and sort of one of my first personal forays into music. Uh, but I definitely want to hear what you guys think about it. I'm a huge fan. Roy Harper's a guy that sang Have a Cigar, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, um I well I mean I, I immigrant song alone I think makes a uh you know like a, I think it falls into the just you know decidedly into the category of songs where you could fart for the next 45 minutes and it would still be a great <laughs> album. Uh you know let's go crazy does the same thing. It's a it's a it's a evening in it where I can you know if you actually made a a playlist of just the first songs on all of these albums it'd be pretty remarkable. So might have to do that. Yeah. Jerry, what's what's your uh, what's your My third next? one? Yeah, yeah, no. So I mean, big Zeppelin three fan as well. Good, good choice, Christian. Um, you know, so my third one, I was kind of in between and in, in between the Wrens, the Meadowlands, and, and the album that I ended up picking, and, and mainly because I kind of talked about the Wrens in, a, in our New Jersey pod. But I went with um, B Thousand by Guided by Voices. So um, I stumbled upon this album. So we. We've talked about in the past kind of how we've all traded music and, and how that's kind of a big part of our relationship. And one of the cool things was, was like, this was one of the albums that I actually was able to turn Wyndham onto. And I literally was just, you know, flipping through a music magazine and, and I read a quick review and, and that, you know, I'm going to sort of paraphrase here, but it said something to the effect of, if the Beatles were a drunk softball team from Ohio, <laughs> they would be guided by voices. And I was like, well, I have to hear this guy by voices, whoever the hell they are. And, um, and you know, I ended up buying B-1000. And, you know, a lot of people love Alien Lanes, which I like, and I think it's a great album, but it's, it's kind of the crooked rain to, to slant it to me in, in the pavement world. It's, it's, it's just not as good. I mean, every song on, on B-1000 is amazing. And the fact that the album <laughs> kind of comes in under 30 minutes is even better. But with, it, like, 72 songs, I believe. 72, yeah, yeah exactly. And I just had never heard anything like it. And, uh, you know, it's a band that, that really, you know, kicks off with hardcore UFOs, tries to rape chain, I Am a Scientist, Gold Star for Robot Boy, Gold Top, Mountain Top. I mean, it's just, 
The Ghost Star Mountain Top Queen Directory? Yeah, I think. <laughs> Kicker of Elves. I mean, it's like... I am like, a scientist. What am I listening to? Kicker of Elves has long been my favorite Guided by Voices song, by the way. Hot I don't know freaks, why, but... You know, because it's great. And it's well, like I mean, short enough to not suck. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, the, that one's done. The funny thing now is that I think people have forgotten, too, that, um, you know, at the time, uh, we the, the Bob Pollard backstory... Uh, has sort of been forgotten now that you know he's had a, such an extended career as, at guided by, with guided by voices. But this guy was a teacher. Yeah, you know. And at this time, he was a teacher, and I was actually going to go into that a little bit. So I mean, I you know I became obsessed with his album, and I remember kind of calling Win, and and you know I think Win we might have been at UMass at the time in college, and just being like, I don't know what this is, but I really like it. <laughs> you know, and I think I think you might like it too. And and uh, you forget about like you know this is the original lineup with his brother and. Um, Jim Pollard, Mitch Mitchell, Tobin Sprout, who also, you know, kind of contributed. But, you know, he was an elementary school teacher who was, like, obsessed with The Who. And they'd farted out, like, a million albums before. And there's a great documentary, Watch Me Jumpstart, if, if, you're, if you're into Get Up and Wizard, if you just, like, rock documentaries. It's awesome. And one of the best parts is, so they got a little bit of press off this album. They started to get, you know, it, you know, obviously they were written about in the magazine that I read. read. I can't remember if it was Spin or something like that whatever magazine it was, and they got invited to CMJ, the music fest in New York City, and um, they played, and, you know, they sort of showed up, and, I mean, these guys are, they're old, you know, <laughs> they're drinking bud cans, and, I mean, I, I think I saw a video of it on the documentary, and his brother, Jim Pollard, literally has sweatpants shorts of Florida State, and it's not <laughs> ironic, you know, it's like, well, the guy's Pollard, just dressed I, like that. I believe he played basketball at Arizona State. He was, yeah, he was yeah. almost a pro basketball player, but he hurt himself, and then Robert Pollard was also, you know, a great pitcher, so they were like, you know, Midwestern guys, love the who, and Pollard talks on this thing, and he's like, I, we were so scared that we played the whole set in like 20 minutes, and then all these New York writers were like, oh my God, these guys are brilliant, you know? And like, they're like, we were literally, we were just like frightened and just like got out of there as quick as we could. Um, but, you know, it's an album that I, you know, if you're not a Guided by Voices fan, and Guided by Voices puts out way too much stuff. Yeah. I mean, they're a band that is really hard to sift through. And, you know, I got to say, like, as much as I've, I've enjoyed their concerts, I've seen them. Even Pollard today is a, is different than the Pollard, you know, when he was just excited to be on stage and, and sort of, you know, putting out these t- songs. But nobody has a better pop sensibility to me than this guy. I mean, it's it's the four-track recordings, lo-fi to the fullest, but with the greatest little hooks, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, you know, I think, I know Wynn loves this album. I, I don't know, Christian, if you've gotten into it as much as we have, but it it's one of my, my all-time favorites, and, and, and really, I think there's not a bad song on it. I, I made sure I went back and listened to every song in, you know, all 20 minutes, and, uh, and they're all great. Yeah. Tri- Trip suggested we do a Battle of the Bands, Guided by Voices B-1000 versus Alien Lanes, which I don't think is a terrible idea. Actually, no, it's I don't either. quite a healthy one, but I, I love this album, um, and it, it really was, I, I think, you know, I think remember the first time I heard it, uh, just, you know, there in every song, and every song is, you know, a, a relative term because they're about a minute and a half long, but there's some moment where your your hair just stands on end. Definitely. Anyway. Right, when? Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to go back to the, uh, around the same vintage and um, go with uh, Slanted and Enchanted, and I think this is the same, suffers the same... Uh, 
from the same thing that B thousand does, which is that it's got an army of uh, the band has an army of fans that that sort of overvalue the album that we value a little less, or I value a little less. Slain and Enchanted to me is by far the best Pavement album, and I don't think you can really talk about it without talking about the band's uh, backstory because I think it really has a lot to do with why this is their best album. And part of the reason I think um, I think once they got an element of notoriety, they really didn't know. There was such a, a strong feeling about um, effort and um, you know, being seen as as being ambitious and selling out and all the silly things that sort of surrounded 90s indie music, um, that Slanted Enchanted was the one album that they put out that didn't really have the stakes in the same way that, you know, some of the follow-ups did. Um, there was, there's a lack of... Um, uh, there's a lack of self-consciousness on this album that I think is is really what what drives um, its its excellence and its greatness. Uh, I think Malcolmus is a really what what gets lost is you know um, with this band is that uh, Steve Malcolmus is a really phenomenal writer, and he is you know I mean it, it sounds um, it would be embarrassing to have said this in 1992 when the album came out, but the guy is a poet. He really is. Uh, you know, his use of language is absurd, and it's um, sometimes um, it's associative as opposed to being narrative. It's um, he really just writes in a way that you know it 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 doesn't really make sense, but it it's it's almost collage type writing where he's painting a picture. Um, and it's more of an abstract than a than a, a portrait, and I think that that um, you know that sort of to me at the time, um, being somebody who was uh, very into um, words and language, uh, this album really really spoke to me at the time, and and I went back and listened to it again today. I listen to it um, you know fairly regularly, but I still get that feeling when I listen to it that I'm listening to somebody who. It's sort of um, unabashedly writing um, some, you know, just interesting stuff. And even uh, Crooked Rain, which came out two years later, I felt like, you know, it was, it had to take its pot shots at the scene and, and the, you know, sort of industry and all the other crap that, you know, sort of became important to these guys. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of purity of this album and the purity of the language on this album along with the, the sort of tunefulness that mixed with the noise uh, really sort of makes this, you know, one of my favorite albums of all time, really. Um, I don't know. You know I, mean, I think, Jerry, I think you actually bought this album first. Yeah, I did. I, um, I, I remember I was going to take credit for, for turning you on to this one as well because it's rare that that happens and certainly rare in my youth. But, um, but yeah. Let it, it be known. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Boom. But, um, yeah, again, I kind of, like, stumbled upon this, this band and uh, 
and I thought the name alone kind of freaked me out. I'm like, oh, are these guys going to be really, really heavy? You know, just the name Pavement for some reason. I thought it was going to be like... Yeah, it's up there with like Slayer, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like sort of metal or like... And this is back before you could, you know, pop on the internet and find out. Or Helmet or Tool or yeah, like well, those kinds exactly, of... Yeah, well, that's exactly... Yeah, Helmet was kind of big right around the same time. It's a good example. Spoon. And I, I thought they would be Helmet and... Um, but yeah, it just like it was kind of like Lou Reed to me or something. I don't know. It was just it was just amazing, and I thought what? great writing. And, and you know, I agree. This album's just it's, it's funny that I mean, not to go into the we could do a Crooked Rain versus uh, Slant Janet too, but I, I think I know who will wow. win. Um, but it really is a start to finish, you know, great album. I mean, Loretta Scars, uh, Zergestein, you know, Summer Babe. It, it, it's. It's just it's the best thing they ever did, and and unfortunately, unlike you know my kind of example of Wilco, I always felt like Pavement kind of let me down every album mm-hmm. after this one, which was a bummer. Me too. <laughs> you know, and it, it was a, uh, a funny thing. I I think um, you know even I think Malcolmus even knows this is his best album, um, in a way. I think it. I think there was like a there was so much pressure on that band after they started getting notoriety. Um, to, yeah, they to were sort definitely of, critical darlings. Yeah, but they, I think they put a lot of that pressure on themselves. I think there was a lot of, you know, I, I saw them live. I, I, um, I put a, uh, you know, a bunch of. I'm moving at the moment, and I put a bunch of my old ticket stubs on Instagram the other day. One of them was from a pavement show in in uh, the early '90s, and I remember just thinking, like, Lisa, our our sister, and I went to this show and, and I remember taking her and going like, you know, this guy is great. This this band is phenomenal, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she was coming off being the program director at WNYU and um, living in New York and, and we went to see them and they were fucking terrible. And um, it was like they were so frightened to try uh, to be good that, you know... It, what? Wasn't it like, but isn't that the quintessential sort of like slacker ethos that they brought to bear? And part of it was nerves, and part of it was like fear of fame, and part of it was like actually just you know their attitudes and yeah. shit. I mean, but it wasn't. You know, cool. They didn't practice. I have that to much. tell you, it wasn't cool. It wasn't like you know. I mean, I, I, no. I saw some. I saw some replacement shows that became conflagrations. That became you know stupid. You know, that became Bob Stinson and the tutu playing uh, Iron Man, but. There was something <laughs> slightly magical and weird about those, but also like I was disappointed, you know. But I, I remember sixteen-year-old me being, you know, disappointed by that. But then, you know, in retrospect, and you know, ten years later, going like I was there when Bob Stinson was wearing a tutu and, and playing Iron Man. I cannot imagine being sixteen and disappointed at that. Yeah. But okay, I mean, that's... I know well, I was just thrilled to be out, but. Um, but in this case, I, you know, like I was, you know, in my 20s, I was probably a, a you know, more or less a, a, you know, a contemporary of, of the band. And I was like, you know what? You try harder. You know, you just you stop being, stop thinking that it's, you know, it's cooler to not try than to, to, to show a little effort. And Oh, yeah. You know who you sound like? One of them, you sound like your parents when you were 21, yeah. by the oh, way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, 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 you know, I would but attribute the my, interesting... my lack of effort to laziness. I think there's sort of, uh, <laughs> self-consciousness. Curious, but I, Christian, I mean, have you ever I do think it's kind of... record? Sorry, I didn't mean to... Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and actually, it's funny. I mean, you guys are you're talking about it and comparing it to Crooked Rain. Like, I, I mean, again, this is one of those things where approaching it in, you know, with... 
with 15 years or 10 years of, of hindsight or whatever it was, um, you know, I didn't really see, I, I didn't really see that one was necessarily, uh, that much more sort of critically praised than the other. Um, I sort of discovered them around the same time. Um, and this was immediately my favorite up over and above Crooked Rain. I don't know that we've actually ever talked about this, which is kind of funny. So, um, I guess my question back to you, though, is, I mean, again, like, the slacker thing, like, I've always kind of been fascinated by it um, because, yeah, look, it's still a pervading uh, pervading ethos, as I said, in, in indie rock culture, right? It's always going to be there. I think these guys sort of brought it into the fold. It was like, it's it's partly an aesthetic. It's partly a way you dress. It's not giving a shit. It's nerdcore. It's all of those things. Um, but, like, these guys were competing heads up with Nirvana, right? Like, yeah. for... Well, you know, for attention from the press. So, like the fact that you put up you put up uh, show tickets the other day on on um, Instagram, as you said, and like those two shows were six months apart. I can't. I, I am not surprised that you looked at these guys and said, "Hey, it would be awesome if you practiced." Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. Nirvana was phenomenal live, but they were they were from a different thing. I mean, Nirvana was much more like the replacements in the sense that Nirvana, um, there was, you know, there. These guys were, this was a college band, you know, full of college guys that, you know, had the, had the time and the ability but, to sort of contemplate what their place in the world was, where, you know, Nirvana and the replacements, if they weren't, um, you know, and, and I believe they both were janitors uh, before they became rock stars, um, you know, they, if, they, if they didn't make it, they were, they were toast, and this was this was sort of if you don't make it you're gonna you're gonna wind up selling and more, software. And by the way, m- yeah. more people survived in pavement than in either of the other bands, so that that's true. probably worth mentioning. Um, you know, but I, I think that uh, I, I mean okay, but I'm saying even zoom out from from their personal needs and and sort of you know how they were gonna survive and make a living. Just like take a big step back for a second and and consider the fact that these things existed at the same time roughly for, a, well, at least they had a pretty big overlap. I was, I was a big fan of But Nirvana also was, had that slacker ethos, too. I mean, I think Nirvana really... Exactly. They were... That's, that's my yeah, point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they just were... They were having to be fame, more but famous than ever was. But when well, I... And a hell of a lot more intensity. But when though. I tell you I mean, that's you the thing. That they had a slacker, I don't give a shit ethos, but, like, they did give a shit, and they cared, and they poured every bit of them into it, whereas, like... The pavement reaction to, um, you know, confronted by the limelight was basically to to say, well, to quit. I, I'm gonna be dis- I'm gonna be disaffected because it's scary. And by the way, I have a fallback plan. Or, which or I it guess was called Wowie Zowie, which was third yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I do think that that would be that's the Zwan of uh, <laughs> you. You do get. I mean, you know, Nirvana did have that slacker ethos. They did. You know, they didn't want to necessarily be huge, or they didn't want to admit how ambitious they were. Whereas you know, pavement. Um, you know, if you went to see them, I, I can't tell you. You know, if you had you been at that show, you would have been like, "Come on!" I mean, it just wasn't even close to entertaining. It wasn't a spectacle of of sh- you know, sort of. It wasn't a shit show. It was. It was like watch. You know, when you're you, when you're in your friend's dorm room and they're tuning their guitar for a half hour before they decide to like play nothing. That's what it was like. Didn't GBV open that show, by the way? No, GBV opened for Urge Overkill at the okay, uh, yeah. when I saw them at the Academy. That was great, and I didn't realize that both of those bands hated each other so much. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> it 
But I, the first time I saw GBV was opening for Urge Overkill at the Academy and in New York, and they literally rolled a cooler out in the middle of the stage, and it was just like open the entire time, and it was it was one of the most beautiful shows I've ever seen because Urge Overkill was a band that sort of you know turned that on its yeah. ear. They they like liked fashion, they liked um, performance, they valued it maybe over actual uh, songwriting chops, which they actually did have, but. Um, but GBV came out and just, you know, it was like, it really was, I mean, it had this, carried the same fashion you, you said from, from the insert of the uh, thing you saw. It was like a bunch of guys in like soft pants playing <laughs> great rock and roll. Elastic band. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it was awesome. That's cool. Well, good, man. Well, Slanted is a great album and uh, Pavement will always be uh, remembered for one perfect album in my book. Yeah, I, I really do, you know, it, it is, I, I think it's un, you know, sort of unfulfilled promise on their part, even though they, you know, are largely regarded as, you know, maybe the best band of the 90s. Um, it, it, I think they could have, I'm sad that they could have been better. Cool. Well, you want to take a break? break? Yep, take a quick break. We'll be back with the last two segments. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Tonight, uh, we're talking perfect albums, and we're going to end this show the way we end every show at this point. Uh, the first segment we're going to do is adding a song to our 110 Greatest Songs of All Time playlist, and then we're going to do What Are You Listening To? So, uh, Christian, I'm going to throw it to you. What song would you like to add to the uh, 110 greatest songs of all time. <laughs> the 10,001 10, greatest song of... Anyway, um, so I'm going to start with... Uh, well, no, my only contribution this week will be Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. Um, you know, this is... A, uh, what do I need to say? It's a fucking killer. Classic. Jer? Um, I'm going to go with... Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I actually 
think about this all week, like what song I want to add, and it's, it's 50 <laughs> times. There's a million. <laughs> Nerd. No, that's, that's the nature of the thingy. <laughs> it changed within this pod. So I had uh, one song originally, and, and now I'm going to do All My Friends by LCD Sound System. Nice. It should have already been on there. Yeah. I'm going to go complete curveball tonight. I'm going to take it back to 1984 when I was uh, confused at the junction of the Violent Femmes and Prince and go with Cindy Lauper time after time. Um, oh, that's I was listening to the radio this week. Uh, Jason Schwartzman has a, a, a guest spot on XMU called Coconut Radio. And he played a version of the song that wasn't even a demo yet. It was a. It was almost like a, a an outtake from the studio um, when they were writing the song. So the lyrics weren't even fully formed yet, and it was just the song with her sort of uh, alternately delivering part of the lyrics and then part of the sort of you know what you do when you're writing songs. You sort of you know mumble in uh, the places where there need to be lyrics and. Um, I was reminded of how absolutely phenomenal that song is. So I love it. Saw saw Jason Schwartzman in the elevator of the uh, of my building at work the other day. Oh, yeah? So if I see him again soon, I will be sure to bring this Please up. Please tell him uh, it was a, it was very uh, I was very it was very welcome and and thank him for uh, playing that because it was really cool. <laughs> thank him earnestly from you. Yeah, no, please. I will. Um, so anyway, that's that, and then uh, we're gonna. Do, what, so, uh, Jerry, what are you listening to these days? Yeah, so um, it's a guy that I have kind of a, a love hate relationship with, more of a hate relationship with. But I, um, I took a spin through the new Ryan Adams Prisoner album on my uh, this last weekend, and, and did the the album thing, and, which kind of falls into our theme, and listened the whole thing from start to finish a couple times. It's pretty good. And uh, I think it's, it's, you know, Ryan Adams, I loved Heartbreaker. I've kind of sporadically liked things here and there. You know, certain things really annoy me about what he does, including the Taylor Swift cover album. But, um, but I think Prisoner is one of his, his finest, and it, it's got a really good sound, good music, and good songwriting. So I'm going to give it a, a thumbs up. Well, it's, it's funny. He falls into the same category as, I mean, he, you know, very different artist than GBV. But we talk about it frequently, you know, the GBVs, the Ryan Adams, the Ty Siegels, the people who require a curator. You want somebody to yeah, tell you what the 10, yeah, you want someone to tell you what the 10 best songs are you want to listen to because they're, they release almost everything. It feels like they release everything they record. Um, Christian, what, what are you listening to these days? All right, so I've actually, I mean, I've, I've had uh, a pretty killer week in, in live music. Um, so I was down in Austin with, uh, with Erica this last weekend for about five days, and we, you know, were trying to hit as many, like, live music venues as we could over, um, over I guess, the four or five days that we were there. And I'd say the two that really stood out were um, seeing, uh, seeing the derailers at the Broken Spoke, um, which is, like, Okay, so the word boot scootin' is not really something that I'd ever, um, like, thought of as, like, a verb that, you know, was in any way, like, to be taken seriously. Going to, going um, to intersect with your life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, but I'm here, I'm sitting in a wood-paneled room with 750 pictures of Lone Star, um, like, watching people, you know, sort of whatever the text and equivalent of, like, um, fast 
fox trotting in a large circle in what appears to be sort of a, a human version of a rodeo ring um, in front of this awesome uh, country western band, the Derailers. We've got a bunch of albums out that you guys should check out. Um, you know, that was a that was a pretty incredible experience. Um, and you know, we, we've talked about this a little bit, uh, Jeremy, just because you know you were you were giving me um, so many great tips about what to, what to do down in Austin, but like. Um, it's such a cool place because you have, you know, this incredible sort of intersection of people who, um, of like, I don't know, actual like Texans and Texas culture and cowboys and shit like that. And then also people who like punk rock. And I think Wyndham, you put it perfectly, um, when you said that, you know, it's like there, there is no choice between liking things like punk rock and football and like, you know, good barbecue and, um, wearing cowboy boots. Like you can have all of those things at once. Um, and there's certainly no judgment about it and certainly not in Austin. So it's, it's a pretty interesting place for that reason. And then the other, the other one concert that I wanted to, to mention here was, uh, this band called the Wagoneers, um, who've actually done some, uh, done some great stuff with Billy Bragg in the past. Um, but they were playing at a place called, uh, Sea Boys Heart and Soul, which is owned by the same people who run the Continental, which is a pretty famous, uh, pretty famous club on South Congress. Um, overall, first time I was in Austin, awesome experience, incredible live music. I realize I'm late to this. Uh, late to this particular party, but um, you know, I, I just I I'm still digesting it all. It was a it was a pretty great time. Well, it was pretty funny actually when you mentioned the derailers. Uh, Jared and I uh, last time I went to Texas, last time I was in Austin when Jeremy lived there, uh, which was uh, I've been there since. But um, last time I was there with Jared, which was probably 2000, 2000 yeah, yeah. we saw 1999 maybe. We saw the derailers at the Broken Spoke. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And not only that, I woke up the next morning, um, grabbed some. Uh, uh, breakfast tacos on, uh, from a truck on the way to oh, the airport Migas tacos and the derailers were on my flight back to new york so, <laughs> oh, that's awesome that was uh that's pretty good um i myself uh i have been in been in sensory deprivation a little bit because i'm moving but um i have been reading um christian the the george orwell politics in the english language uh, that oh, he gave man. me, which I uh, highly recommend, particularly if you're moving because it's 15 pages long, but it's a, a very, very well worth the read. <laughs> and, um, you know, if I can, I can get glasses that magnify the print well enough off the pamphlet that you gave me. It's, it's a pretty remarkable and pretty astoundingly, like everything George Orwell did, um, you know, very prescient, very forward thinking and very frightening. So, yeah, he's uh, he's not one of these. I mean, he's it, I, just a quick thing on this. I mean, I, you know, I think he's obviously remembered for his novels. Um, but this is just a short essay he wrote about how important, you know, words and the alteration of language and the normalization of certain types of language are for, um, you know, for politics um, and the way that those things can be co-opted into, you know, movements. Uh, left, right, or, or you know, or otherwise. Well, so as, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's an important sort of reflection on um, yeah. Hold the, the, the title of the pamphlet. Sorry, I didn't catch it. When would you say? Politics in the English language. Politics in the English language. And the English language, I believe, isn't it? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know has a you know particular resonance for me as a former political speechwriter, um, you know, and someone who had you know spent a lot of time. Mulling over words, thinking about <laughs> thinking about these kinds of things, but um, yeah, it's. I wish I had read this before I 
for I did 15 years in that in that business and then left but um it is it is remarkable and it is amazing you know I think about how cautious I am with uh language when I'm writing it for other people um you know so the things that you know don't pin people in a corner things that allow you uh, a certain um you know sort of dynamism of of you know movement and thought and um you know it's really interesting to read this Obviously, George Orwell, long, long dead, but um, uh, very, very much of a predictor of the future. So, but also kind of, it's cool because it's like, I mean, when you're thinking about Orwell, it's, it sort of it puts his the rest of his writing in a slightly different light for me. Um, and I think, you know, it it really does drive home the fact that he was a he was a a, a man of many talents in addition to, um, you know, writing interesting allegorical stories. Um, he was a really insightful, incisive, uh, uh, you know, political thinker and, and, you know, in addition to being a, uh, a, a good novelist. So. And a hell of a juggler. So there you go. <laughs> yes. All right. And, and in the derailers. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Bass and- player, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's uh that is uh tonight's perfect albums and um thanks to you guys for uh talking. That's it for today's episode of the Brother 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 Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing and from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian. See you next time. <laughs>